Why is the COVID health hazard the only thing worthy of our consideration? I call it COVID derangement syndrome. At the Brownstone Institute's inaugural conference, I sat down with Donald Boudreau, a professor of economics at George Mason University and a senior fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. You know, people talk about long COVID. I worry about long lockdown. I really fear that we are in for a hell of a stretch. Now that governments know they can basically do anything they want to us if they scare us enough. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanye Kellick. Dr. Don Boudreau, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Happy to be here. Don, you're an economist, and you've been looking at the effect on the economy of the various coronavirus responses in America, and I suspect beyond. Let me actually start here, okay? I'll, I'll share an anecdote. Um, as I explained who I would be interviewing today to someone I know, they said, well, how can you be interviewing an economist about this? You know, this, it's, it doesn't that sound a little bit heartless? This is a national emergency. But what do economists have to do with this? Your thoughts? <laughs> so, economic, first, when, when people say that, I think they think economics is about maximizing the amount of money profits a, a person makes or a company makes. It's not about that at all. Economics teaches us about the importance of trade-offs, right? You can't pursue one good without giving up some of some other good. And so that's the first thing that economics reminds us about. So we can all agree that if fighting COVID were costless, if, 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 if we gave up nothing, well, let's do it without, without any, any restraint. But that's not the world we live in. Economics says we live in a world of scarce resources. Resources used to fight COVID are resources not used for other things that we humans value, including other healthcare outcomes that we value. Um, Moreover, the, the time we spend fighting COVID is time we can't spend doing other things. When we, when we attack COVID uh, by, by, or think we are attacking COVID, by masking children, shutting down schools, economics says you've got to look at what you're giving up. Yeah, you, you might be getting some mitigation of the risks of COVID. I am an economist. I can't really answer that question. You might be getting some mitigation, but, I, but what an economist can say is you're not getting that mitigation free of charge. You're paying something for that. And what I've seen in the past 21 months is a gross ignorance of this fact, a, a gross failure to recognize that COVID mitigation tactics, COVID mitigation strategies, COVID mitigation measures come at a cost. And first step would just be take account of that recognize that. Don't pretend that these costs are not there. Don't pretend that you're getting this, mitig this mitigation for free. You're not. And if you're of the mindset that it's free, or if you just start with the assumption that no matter, no matter how much it costs, of course it's worthwhile. Every further reduction in exposure, in the risk of exposure to COVID is worthwhile, then you're forgetting about the cost side of, the, of COVID mitigation. There is a cost side. And the more COVID mitigation we pursue, the more costly it becomes. And at some point, the benefits of further mitigation are no longer worth the cost that we're paying for that mitigation. And so that's the first thing that economics brings to the discussion. And the second thing that economics brings to the discussion on this point is the cost that we're giving up. It's not just money. It's not just, for, it is foregone income. It is lost jobs to some people. It is shut down businesses, which are all tragic, 
But it's not just that. It is the, 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 the things that we can't measure in money, the socialization, the failure of children to five-year-olds to grow up seeing their fellow schoolmates' faces. Um, it's the foregone non-COVID health consequences. The, the, you know, people have pointed this out. I don't think it's, it can be denied. The, the uh, foregone cancer screenings, mm. not being able to, I think they call it pandemic pounds now, right? So people staying at home, so they're, they're not exercising as much, they're, they're gaining weight. That creates health hazards. Why are those health hazards not worthy of our consideration? Why is the COVID health hazard the only thing worthy of our consideration? And economics says it shouldn't be. So we give up a lot when we pursue any goal to the extreme. We are pursuing the COVID goal, in my view, to the extreme, meaning we're giving up too much. Well, and so this is, let, let me pursue this question, the question that you actually asked, because I know that this is something that's been on your mind. Why this extreme reaction to COVID in a reality when there's all sorts of health outcomes that need to be considered? For example, let's just talking about the health outcomes. Yeah, yeah. you asked the $64 trillion question. I, I don't know why people have, have reacted in this way. Um, I, I think I can speculate about why many political leaders have acted in this way. If you frighten people enough, you identify one monster and, and, and you say, that monster is gonna kill you. And the only thing that can save you from that monster is me. Well, if a politician can succeed in doing that, obviously that's valuable to the politician. The politician gets more power, the politician gets more discretion. I understand that. It's very uh, realistic, I, I think, not cynical, I just think realistic understanding of the political motivation. The more difficult question is, why have so many ordinary men and women allowed themselves to be frightened to this degree? Why have so many ordinary men and women allowed themselves to focus on one risk? COVID is a risk, there's no doubt about it. Why focus on one risk and allow yourself to be diverted from the, the costs of mitigating that risk. Allow yourself to be blind to the healthcare, the, the, the non-COVID health consequences of focusing excessively on COVID. I don't know why. It's almost as if there was a disease that was set loose on humanity in early 2020, uh, but not, not SARS-CoV-2, some disease that infected people's brains and, and, just, and, 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 and caused those brains, rewired their brains. To, to think that COVID is the only risk that humanity faces, or the only risk that is worthwhile to protect against. And of course it's not. Why people have allowed themselves to come to believe this, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that we'll ever know. It's, it, it, it's mysterious to me. You know, so let's look at some of the, I guess let's call it collateral damage, right? I mean, the things that I've come across, um, you know, very significant increases in suicidal ideation. I remember some shocking numbers there. Of course, this, these breast and prostate cancer screenings not being done. It's unclear what the impact of that will be, but you can do some pretty convincing modeling that shows some pretty, frankly, shocking costs, right? Things that could easily have been prevented if people actually been able to go to the hospital or felt like they could go to the hospital. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are just a couple of things off the top of my head. Can, can you give me kind of a, a picture of what that looks like? Well, I think you painted it well yourself. The more we pursued COVID in, in excess, the, the, the fewer resources were devoted to these other health measures. 
the less time was devoted to those other health measures. And so because of that, we're going to get worse health outcomes on those fronts, even if we get better health outcomes on the COVID front. Now, it's not, all, not at all clear to me that we will on the COVID front, but it's certainly clear to me that you cannot get better health outcomes on the COVID front without getting worse health outcomes on other fronts, given that people were prevented by the excessive reaction to COVID to avoid or delay these, these other health measures, these other medical pr procedures. It's, it's almost like a law of arithmetic. I, if, if you want to spend more time pursuing that goal, well, you're spending less time pursuing that goal. And you know, we, everybody can remember prior to COVID, we were all told you know, how, how important it is to, to you know, see your doctor and you know, preventive care is the best care. These public service messages are all over the place and they, they're constant, constantly a part of life. Well, what, what happened to that wisdom when COVID struck? It seemed to have been thrown out of the window, defenestrated, uh, just gone. Uh, the only thing that mattered was fighting COVID. I call it COVID derangement syndrome. Um, it's, not a, it's not a technical scientific uh, uh, malady. Uh, it's my own word, but, but the derangement that I refer to is the failure to recognize that COVID mitigation the mitigating the risks of exposure to COVID uh, comes at a cost. And the failure to recognize that means that you live in this deranged, bizarre reality for you where the only thing that matters is avoiding COVID. And I think it's very dangerous, not only for the individual, but obviously for society. Well, I guess my big question for you, and this is what I've been thinking as I've been thinking, you know, how to talk to you about this stuff is, you know, we're, we're here today, right? This COVID, let's call it COVID derangement syndrome, um, affects all sorts of people, including people that create policy, obviously. Very much. Right. And it's kind of hard to imagine a path out, given what I know about the impacts of the current policy, talking to all these different folks affiliated with Brownstone as you are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but from the economics perspective, clearly this is something that you've been thinking about. So uh, one of my favorite books in all of economics is a now, it's a very classic text, not textbook, very classic volume published in 1987 by the economic historian Robert Higgs. It's called Crisis and Leviathan. And what Bob Higgs does in that book is look at all the crises in American history from the beginning up through the mid 80s, wars, uh, uh, m mostly wars, but, but economic crises as well. Bob Higgs is a very, very famous and very competent economic historian. What he finds is that when any, whenever there's a crisis, some of which are more real than others, by the way, government officials have an incentive to gin up the crisis because it gins up their power. Whenever there's a crisis, government powers expand. Usually they'll contract a little bit afterward, but never as they never relinquish, relinquish all of the powers that they gain during the crisis. And so government power ratchets up. So we have now a crisis of a sort uh, that I've never, we have, we have the perception of a crisis of a sort that I've never seen in my lifetime, the whole COVID thing. People are walking around, they think they're gonna die within the next few seconds sometimes, they're gonna drop dead of COVID. So having put people in this mindset and frightening people into believing but that COVID is more dangerous than it really is, by which I also mean failing to recognize that it is much more dangerous to the elderly than it is to the young, by frightening people in the way that governments have done and the, and the media have done about COVID, 
uh, the government's gotten this power. Maybe some of it will be relinquished, some of it. But if Bob Higgs is correct, and there's no reason for me to believe he's incorrect and that his thesis does not apply today, that we will have ratcheted up government's power to a, a greater degree than it, we, it would have been ratcheted to in the absence of COVID. In my view, government was already too powerful and already too big and already too intrusive before COVID. And so now it's even bigger. And, 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 and I think that size and that expansion um, and that, that uh, uh, excess powers, much of it's going to stick around, creating a bad precedent. Uh, in, in terms of how to get out of this, when you frighten people, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I am genuinely worried, genuinely worried that um, even if at some point the COVID fear is going to diminish. But we have seen how easily it is to frighten Americans, all of humanity, actually, in, uh, with threats of a, of a pathogen. So there's going to be another more lethal than normal pathogen that emerges within the next few years. That's what, the, that's what I read from scientists whose opinions I respect. And when that happens, I fear the same thing is going to happen again. And the narrative will be, oh, you can already see it, actually. Uh, oh, look, if it weren't for the, for the decisive actions of Governor Newsom and, and Governor Cuomo uh, and Governor uh, in, in, in New Jersey and Michigan, uh, even more people would have died. So we have this new pathogen, you know, COVID-24. So we got to do the same thing again. Uh, the precedent has been set and people seem distressingly willing to be frightened out of their gourds by, by, uh, uh, by the media and by the government when one of these pathogens emerges. We've experienced uh, over the last 21 months a whole series of these lockdown measures, which were by any measure, you know, economically catastrophic. Yep. Um, do you have some kind of quantification of this? No, and I think it's, I think it's impossible for anybody. A lot of economists claim they can, they can quantify it. There are papers out there claiming to quantify it. I, I'm very, I've always been very skeptical of the ability to, to do that, uh, to, to put actual do dollar figures on it. But it's going to be massive. You cannot shut down the world economy, you know, huge chunks of the world economy, without expecting significant uh, uh, negative effects. You just can't do it. You cannot ratchet up government spending in the way that government spending has been ratcheted up, not only in the, in the U.S., but in most countries around the world, without having negative consequences. Because government spending, even if you think the government spending is great, Again, everything has a cost. The government, more government spends, that means there are fewer resources remaining for the private sector to use. So I don't have a, I don't have a number, except, I, but I do have a, a term, massive, massive, gigantic, uh, uh, maybe even unprecedented, maybe even unprecedented. So when it comes to, you know, you, so you use the term unprecedented, and of course, you know, the impacts are unprecedented based on unprecedented policy. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of the lessons of the past seem to be for, have been forgotten. So expand on this for me. So typically what happened in the past, um, it, was, it was a very routine thing. So some politician or some, some pundit would, would, would advocate some policy, again, raising the minimum wage, raising tariffs, and good economists come along and say, oh, no, 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 hang on. You know, all you see is some workers getting higher wages, if we stick with the minimum wage example. But 
but there are unintended consequences. The world's a lot more complicated than you, you think it is. And when you raise the cost of hiring workers, some workers will lose their jobs. Some jobs will become less attractive than otherwise because employers are going to work their employees harder. Uh, uh, the prices of, of, of goods that are produced with higher cost labor will, will go up, and that's going to have a negative impact. And also recognize, in addition to that, that uh, although the politicians always say, well, we're doing this for the, for the, the public good, and, and maybe some of them mean it, politicians are also self-interested. Uh, they have their own motives. They want to get reelected, and that's their primary goal. And, and so don't trust their motives so much. Just because something has a, uh, because a statute has a nice name, don't assume that the statute is going to achieve what the name suggests it will achieve. Be a little more cynical. Recognize that the world's more complex. Recognize that all economic policy, all economic actions indeed, are many stages. If you go to a play, you don't leave the play after act one and think you understand the whole play if it's a three-act play. You gotta stay for the whole play. The economists say, stay for the whole play. Look at the whole picture. And so, but in the case of COVID, that lesson has been forgotten. That, that lesson was not taught as much. It surprises me how few, there are exceptions, surprises me how few economists failed to do their jobs, in my view. Uh, uh, the, same, the same economists who, if the discussion were about minimum wages or tariffs or occupational licensing or raising capital gains tax, would say, oh, you, know, you have all these unintended consequences, you know, let's, let's look at the whole picture. COVID comes along, crickets from a lot of these economists, they say nothing. Uh, and and as, as, if, as if the COVID episode somehow uh, is immune to economic logic and, and immune to the laws of economics that we know operate in every other realm of human activity. I think they operate also in the realm of, of, of disease mitigation against, against COVID. The lessons were, there was just, it's not so much that they were forgotten. Uh, I don't think economists forgot them. I just think that there's some, this mysterious failure to recognize that the lessons that apply in every other aspect of policymaking apply also to this aspect. There's no reason to think this particular area of policymaking, COVID mitigation, is any different from any other uh, uh, area of policymaking when it comes to the importance of recognizing unintended consequences, when it comes to recognizing the, the fact that the underlying realities are always more complex than the politicians and the pundits usually present those realities, and the, the recognition also that nothing is free. You know, this, this, I teach my students this acronym. I didn't make it up, uh, but, but every I teach mostly freshman students, 18-year-olds. I teach my students so, you know, one of the important principles of economics is in an acronym, it's TANSTAFFL, T-A-N-S-T-A-A-F-L. Ain't, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. So it's not about lunch, it's about anything, right? So you can get more of one thing, but it's always gonna cost you something. It's a simple point, and I keep repeating it. But that point, that point was largely ignored in the COVID uh, hysteria. It, it, it's as if people thought that it, it was costless, or that the costs uh, uh, were, were insignificant compared to, the, compared to the, the, the alleged benefits of any further increase in COVID mitigation. It's hard to find anybody else, frankly, very few who are talking in these kinds of uh, even concepts, let's say. Uh, I mean, what, what do you make of that? 
I don't know. <laughs> I think about that question now every day. I don't know. Like you don't talk to some of your colleague friends and say, hey, what, what's up with your not thinking about this? So, well, so part of the problem is I don't see my colleague friends much anymore because a lot of them still stay at home. I'm not talking just about my colleagues at George Mason. I'm just talking about, you know, I, I haven't been to a professional meeting in, in quite some time. I just don't see many people. I mean, you see them over Zoom. Um, but, the, you know, the spontaneous interactions that you have with people are, for me as for everyone else, much, much, much fewer now than they were pre-COVID. Um, I'm not a controversial kind. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a contentious kind of person. I, you know, I, I, different people have their different motivations. And, and so, you know, I don't want to get in their, get in their face and say, why aren't you, you know, behaving like I would like you to behave, right? Um, uh, who knows? For all, for all I know, maybe I'm wrong. None of us are, are perfect. It's just, I'm just surprised. I'm just, I'm just surprised at the silence of many of my fellow economists. Uh, but, I, but I can't explain it. Other than speculating, well, they just, the fear they have of this particular disease is, is so immense that somehow the costs become insignificant in their view. Uh, but, but, but if that's true, then I wonder, well, why don't you look at the actual data? I mean, it is, again, it's dangerous, unusually dangerous for lots of people, but for young people, it's, it's not at all. For the majority of the population, it's not terribly dangerous. I, I do have a colleague, uh, my colleague Brian Kaplan at George Mason, who uh, said early on, and I think he's correct, and he's never deviated from this, he said, look, uh, we're really overreacting to COVID. And this is maybe a year and a half ago, April of 2020. We're really overreacting to COVID. All right, so COVID's more dangerous than the flu. All right, let's say it's 10 times more dangerous. Well, that means we should have probably maybe 10 times more effort devoted to mitigating COVID. They said, we don't have that. We have like 1,000, 10,000 times more effort devoted to mitigating COVID than to mitigating the flu. This disproportion is inappropriate. I think that's a nice way, it's a nice way to put it. Um, uh, I think any sensible person, economist, non-economist, thinks that proportion is, is, is valuable. And uh, the reaction uh, to COVID, in my view, I think is unmistakably and has been unmistakably far in excess of the risks, the actual risks posed by, by COVID. I'll mention one other unseen consequence of, of COVID that not enough people take cognizance of, although I alluded, I alluded to it earlier. You know, people talk about long COVID. And I think the I think the evidence for long COVID is pretty weak. Um, but again, I'm not a physician. Maybe it's a real thing. You know, so, well, yes, you survive COVID, but you know you you have headaches for the rest of your life, or you turn green or something. Yeah, you have you have some lasting consequences that are that are less than fatal. I worry about long lockdown. I worry about the consequences of of the lockdowns on human society. And I think that the, the lasting consequences, the, the, the precedent set by these lockdowns is going to haunt us for a long, long time. I hope I'm wrong, but I really fear that we are in for uh, a hell of a stretch uh, now that governments know they can basically do anything they want to us if they scare us enough. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm very fearful of that. So this is, you're not only just talking about the actual sort of impact of for the things that we talked about earlier, right? For example, not getting the medical screenings, the kids right. not being in school. I mean, there's obviously huge impacts to all these things. This, you're talking, it's very interesting. The impact of people who seek yes. power realizing they can get it this yes. way. Yes. Fascinating. Yes. You can, you can, I mean, I think I would classify the delayed cancer screens and such as part of what I'm calling long, long COVID, the, 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 the long-term effects. Long lockdown, sorry, right? Yeah, long lockdown. Um, but, but you're exactly right. What I had in mind is the, the precedent that the lockdowns have set and continue to set for government policy. And I think that's going to be with, with us indefinitely. And I'm very fearful of that. And I think that will be a far, a far more uh, dangerous, it'll have far worse consequences for humanity than the COVID pathogen itself will ever have had. Well, so I'll share one of the lessons that I've, one of the things that keeps striking me when I look at this uh, whole coronavirus reality um, around us is um, how powerful uh, the need to conform to official narratives is, or, or the compulsion to do so, or the uh, feeler of being ostracized. I mean, I've never had a chance to observe it in this kind of way. And I mean, first of all, I guess is you, you've been, you know, despite being non-contentious, quite outspoken. Has there been any professional cost and is that an element that, that you, why economists might not be talking about these things? I can't say I have felt personally any professional costs. Um, I have gotten lots of nasty emails, some from people I know, mostly from strangers. I don't like that. No one likes to get a nasty email. Uh, I've, I've been told on more than one occasion, literally, that I have blood on my hands as if I'm, I make public policy, I, I, I don't. <laughs> so that's unpleasant, but personally, I haven't suffered in any, in any way. Um, and um, you know, I feel very, I've always felt very passionately about the importance of, of human liberty. Uh, I mean, I am professionally an economist, but, but ideologically, I, I treasure and value human liberty. I consider myself to be a classical liberal. And I, I think these are values worth upholding. And I believe that classical liberalism, the liberalism of John Locke and Adam Smith, the early John Stuart Mill, I think that philosophy, which, which I believe is responsible for modernity, responsible for this amazing standard of living that we have in such abundance, we take it for granted. That uh, philosophy, that understanding, taken a huge battering in the past 21 months. M maybe some hot shooting war in the past uh, was as much of a threat to classical liberalism. World War II, perhaps I wasn't around then. But certainly in my lifetime, I have never seen anything that posed so much of a risk to the values that I cherish and that I think are utterly necessary for undergirding modern tolerant society, peaceful society, as this assault on liberalism that uh, has come along with, with, with COVID. You, you know, it, you cannot, it is a highly illiberal notion uh, to believe that there are a group of experts out there who have the truth 
and your only duty is to listen to them. And that if you don't, you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting your fellow human beings and therefore you should be punished. And that's the kind of attitude you know that a lot of people have had about the scientific dict uh, uh, proclamations that a lot of the uh, uh, COVID so-called experts have, have, have issued. And just to use one, Anthony Fauci, I have no idea if Anthony Fauci is a good or bad physician. I have no idea if Anthony Fauci is a, a, a good or bad expert in, in infectious diseases. That's way out of my wheelhouse. Right? But I do know that Anthony Fauci is not an expert on how you or I should live our lives. Anthony Fauci has no idea what is the appropriate amount of risk that I should take or you should take in order to uh, avoid one particular kind of disease. But he acts as if he has that kind of authority and people treat him as if he has that kind of knowledge rather. People treat him as if he somehow has divined this because he's an expert in, in infectious diseases. People assume that, mysteriously to me, that well, therefore he's an expert in how the rest of humanity, or at least the rest of the, of, of the United States, should respond and react to infectious diseases. This is one of the most appalling things about the past 21 months, this follow the science mantra. People, uh, uh, it's, it's alluring, right? Because, because if you believe that, right? if you believe that science provides an answer to what we should do, well, then there's only one right thing to do, and that's what science says. But science can't tell us what to do. Science can only tell us with more or less precision, depending upon the particular question, science can only tell us what are the likely consequences of pursuing one course of action as opposed to pursuing another course of action. Science cannot tell us which of those courses of actions we should pursue because each course of action has costs and benefits. And science can't tell us how we should weigh those costs and benefits against each other. That's not the role of science. No competent scientist would pretend that science can tell us what to do. No competent scientist would tell us that, that, that we, should follow, we should follow the science, that the public policy should be made by the science. Yes, the science should help inform us about policy options. We should, we should take information from, the, from, from science and use it to make more informed judgments about courses of action. But science can't tell us what to do. And the moment you believe that society is a science project, where, where you have the, 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 you know, the policymakers in the role of scientists, and they're, and the, they're going to get the knowledge of what society should be like, uh, and they'll, with, in, in, in corroboration with their experts, they'll figure out what to do, then all freedom is gone. Then we're all, just, we're all basically just glorified rats in a lab. Um, and, and, uh, but a, lot, a shockingly large number of people seem to have that attitude now about, about science. And there's a corresponding point to that. It's one that Martin Kulldorff complains about rightly quite a lot. Uh, he's one of the people, other people complain about it as well. But uh, I associate him with this point, and he's very heroic in pointing it out. And that is, particularly in times of a pandemic, particularly when things are especially dangerous, you, don't, you do not want to shut down conversation. You do not want to shut down dissent. Because none of us have access to the knowledge of God. We just don't. We're human beings. And we learn, that's how we, we human beings learn, by, by sharing ideas with each other, by, by you telling me why you think I'm wrong and me considering that and, and, and vice versa. And then that, that, that conversation process uh, uh, is how we get closer to getting a better understanding 
of the world, get closer to truth. But so many people in the past 20 month, 21 months have, have wanted to shut down dissent. If you didn't take the official line, then uh, uh, not only were you an enemy of humanity, you were a science denier. Well, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. No scientist says, look, I, I, have, this, uh, I have this new theorem. Uh, I know it's correct, and so no more discussion. If you question my theorem, then you know, we, we, we're going to silence you. That's not a scientist. That's a dictator. And, uh, and so this is another, this is another thing. I would, this is another reaction and, and, and consequence I would lump under the long lockdown complaint I have. This unfortunate, mistakenly... It's a mistaken view about what science can and cannot do for us. Well, uh, we're going to finish up. Any final quick thought? I hope every th all of my predictions and fears turn out to be wrong. <laughs> you know, you, usually when we talk about, you say, well, I, here's how I think the world works, here's how I think it will happen. We kind of secretly want it to turn out to be true, so, we, so our genius can be proven by, by the future. I, I hope everything that I say about the future is mistaken because I do not have, at this moment at any rate, a very optimistic uh, uh, pre prediction. My, my predictions about the future are not very uh, rosy. Well, Dr. Don Boudreau, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me.